morning and welcome once again to Mind Matters, our series of bridge talks and lectures. I'm Carol Meng. Today we'll talk about what it means to be British in the former British colony of Hong Kong. Dr. Vivian Kong from the University of Bristol has written a book, Multiracial Britishness, to trace the experiences of multiracial residents in 1910 to 45 Hong Kong. She will guide us through the colony's cosmopolitan social spaces and to discover how Britishness existed in the colony in multiple hyphenated forms. Dr. Vivian Kong was invited by the University of Hong Kong to give a talk entitled "Multiracial Britishness: Global Networks in Hong Kong, 1910 to 45." As many of you would know, Hong Kong was and still is a, a multiracial city. Living in Hong Kong were not only the ethnic majority, the Chinese、um, or white Britons, but also other groups such as Eurasian,、uh, the Portuguese, or as we call them today, the Macanese community,、um, a sizable、um, population of South Asians, as well as other Europeans such as Germans, the French, Russians. Americans and, and Japanese and so on, and I really want to highlight this racial diversity because it's this racial diversity that allow Hong Kong、um, to be、um, to be a very excellent site for us to understand how cultural diversity of the British Empire shaped the development of British identities. Although historians in existing publications have acknowledged and explored how cross-cultural interactions have enriched the meaning of being British, before my book,、um, our conversation have been limited primarily to、um, exploring how one indigenous group in a colonial context interacted with white Britons there,、um, and so I want to overcome this limitation of existing publications. So my book explores how different racial communities in Hong Kong engage with Britishness,、um, and underscore that these different communities actually coexisted with each other, and think about how their interactions with one another、um, enriched, stretched, and complicated the meaning of being British. To do so, I look at different sources, and these sources include colonial documents. Um, newspapers, um, especially um, also、uh, letters to editors、um, from anonymous readers as well. I also looked at student publications such as the Hong Kong New Student Union magazine,、um, institutional sorry institutional records of um, different um, civil civic associations, as well as、uh, memoirs and autobiographies. And I also did oral history interviews with、um, former residents of Hong Kong as well. Through looking and consulting these different sources, I found that in 1910 to 1945 Hong Kong, Britishness actually existed in multiple hyphenated forms. It meant many different things. As I said, in many at in at at many times, it was understood as a racial category.、Um, But actually, because Hong Kong was a British colony, being British would be helpful. It could bring one、um, convenience and privileges. So, for many people in Hong Kong, it was also understood as a means to obtain privileges or convenience that would be essential for survival in the British colony. 
What's perhaps more surprising to many people is that despite racial discrimination, Britishness was also developed into a national identity and a form of cultural belonging that people of color living in the colony also possessed. Sometimes residents of Hong Kong also define Britishness as a cosmopolitan sensibility. Um, they thought that being British meant that they were being cosmopolitan as well. And I'm going to talk a, a little bit more on that later. But when I realized that being British meant so many different things in Hong Kong before the Second World War, I can't help but also started wondering more questions. One of the questions was, who were the people that actually engaged with these different notions of Britishness? And when, how, and why did they do so? And as I think about how they engage with Britishness, I also thought, were there any problems for them to engage with Britishness? Especially as um, many of them would have other existing um, notes of belonging as well. How did that interact with their existing identities, such as Chineseness or the Macanese identity, etc.? So, in different chapters of my book, I address these different questions and and think about you know different forms of of British identities. For instance, in chapter one, um, British by law, I looked at how Britishness existed in Hong Kong as a legal identity and how those in Hong Kong engage with um, the legal Britishness. In the period that I deal with in the book, according to British nationality law, which you can see on the screen here, all those born and naturalized within the territory of British Empire would be entitled to the status of British, uh, British subject. So this means that a Chinese person um, who was born in Hong Kong to Chinese parents legally speaking, should be as British as a white Briton who was born in London to white British parents. And legally speaking, they would have the same kind of rights in Britain and in Hong Kong as British subjects. Um, and these included the right to enter and to live in the UK. But in practice, racism often prompted officials um, to think that if one wasn't born to British, white British parents, they can't be fully British. And so these officials uh, would often ignore the fact that these um, colonial subjects in Hong Kong actually had um, British subjecthood. And they would try really hard to prevent colonial subjects in Hong Kong to know about the, their legal status and to make use of the rights that comes with this legal status as British subjects. So here, for instance, um, you're looking at a document from 1933 where Whitehall officials um, mentioned that there's been this existing policy where colonial authorities in Hong Kong were instructed to issue only travel certificates rather than a full um, passport to Chinese residents in Hong Kong. And this was done to prevent um, Chinese residents of Hong Kong to use a full British passport to enter the UK. And this is just one of the many examples I can find in documents or in the news about how um, the state officials tried to um, obstruct colonial subjects in Hong Kong from using their British subjecthood. But paradoxically, even with these um, racist policies in place, with state officials trying their best to pre 
and an abstract British subjects in Hong Kong to know and to use their rights as British subjects. I found that in 1920s onwards, uh, more and more Hong Kong residents were actually becoming aware of their legal status as British subjects, and they would make active use of this status as well. And they made active claims to this status for various reasons. Um, and the most obvious one is perhaps, as I said, Hong Kong was a British colony. Um, having a British status would just make your life so much easier. Um, you can travel more easily to places like Singapore. Um, but you can also, um, enjoy certain privileges, um, in the, in the public world or in the commercial world as well. So it's not hard for us to understand why many colonial elites, such as Wong Sing, Sir Ho Kai, Sir Wai Yok, or Sir Robert Ho Tong, um, who would want to thrive in Hong Kong's commercial and public world, would very publicly declare that they were British subjects and they would made active use of this status in the commercial and public world of Hong Kong. But I also found evidence that it wasn't just those in the upper middle class in Hong Kong that made use of legal Britishness. Here, for instance, um, I'm showing you an evidence of a cook um, called Arlo Loing, um, who is from Hong Kong, who was living in the UK at the time, and wanted to apply for naturalization as British subject, um, so that he could live in Britain. But as I said, um, anyone born in Hong Kong when it was a British colony would be a, um, British subject by law. Their home office later realized that Alo Lo Wing was actually born in Kowloon, uh, when Kowloon was already a, um, a British colony. So he was in fact a British subject by birth and had no need to be naturalized. But I think his case is really interesting here, right? Because A, it tells us that um, even someone in the working class would um, have the desire to engage with Britishness, but also B, that they have very limited knowledge about the um, the legal their legal status. And I should say that Alo Lowing actually went to the UK for some years before this already. Um, and so um, this is a case that shows us how um, those in the working class would also want to engage with Britishness. At the same time, the population census of 1931 also recorded more than 270,000 Chinese residents that were reported to be British subjects. With this and a few other cases in the archive where I found, um, British, uh, where I found colonial subjects in Hong Kong, um, applying to, to deploy their, their rights as British subjects, it shows that by the 1930s, there was a growing awareness within the wider colonial population about the fact that, um, you know, to be born and naturalized in Hong Kong made one legally British. And so, um, and this legal British status can give one the basis to engage further with other notions of Britishness. And so in the following chapters, I turn to examine um, the possibilities and challenges for colonial subjects to acquire other forms of Britishness. In chapter three, for instance, I've been looking at the screen, you would know that uh, what is the case study of, of my chapter three here. And yes, this is our beloved Hong Kong U. In this chapter, I focus on the experience of ethnic Chinese students um, who studied at Hong Kong U um, before the Second World War to examine how cultural Britishness 
affected the lived experience of Chinese diasporas in Asia in the 20th century. I think many of us here probably already know that Hong Kong U was actually founded with a very explicit agenda to advance British imperial interests in China. Founders of the university wanted Hong Kong U to educate Chinese students and mainly Chinese students from mainland China. Um, and they wanted the university to teach these students not just Western knowledge, but more importantly, British values. So then after studying at Hong Kong U, they would have this appreciation for British system, British culture, and British values. And then after their graduations, they could become missionaries of the British Empire. They envisioned that these graduates would then return to China and work in the Chinese government and then make the Chinese government more inclined to British system, British, um, you know, commercial industry, um, and, and British values. Um, and they thought this could help counteract the growing imperial influences that Japan, Germany, and the United States had in China at the time. So apart from teaching Western knowledge and British values, a great emphasis um, of the university administration and of the colonial officials in establishing Hong Kong U was also placed on steering the students away from Chinese nationalism because they wouldn't want the students to become radical um, and, and so inspired by nationalist sentiments that um, they would prefer not to work uh, with British colonial or imperial interests. And so in this chapter, um, chapter three, through student magazines and, and memoirs of graduates, I examine how, it intro uh, how the indoctrination of cultural Britishness left very visible social effects on Chinese students at Hong Kong U and how um, colonial education at Hong Kong U shaped the way they responded to Chinese anti-colonial movements as well. I think one thing I should say about Hong Kong U um, before the Second World War was that although the founders wanted Hong Kong U to educate mostly mainland Chinese students, the historical reality was that before the Second World War, mainland students were the minority on campus as you can see from this pie chart here, in 1940, um, mainland students accounted for only 27% of the Chinese student population on campus. The majority uh, was Hong Kong Chinese and very closely followed by overseas Chinese uh, who were mainly from the straight settlements. These different origins meant that when students, when Chinese students came to Hong Kong U, they already had received different um, level of exposure to Western and uh, mainly British political and cultural influence. They would have different inclination towards um, Chineseness and towards Britishness as well. Listening to Mind Matters, where we just had Dr. Vivian Kong from the University of Bristol telling us about some backgrounds of the British colony. Next, she will continue to discuss how Britishness existed in the city. 
The cover image of my book, um, which is a photo of the Faculty of Arts in the 1920s, actually can give us a pretty good sense of these cultural differences um, um, within its ethnic Chinese popula uh, student population as well. So as you can see from the photo here, some of them wore transam, uh, wore chipao, um, but, but then most of them wore suits, some even had bow ties on. Um, and you can, you can get a sense of these sort of cultural practices, um, going on amongst the student population there. And for most of these students that, uh, you know, like coming to Hong Kong U, studying at Hong Kong U was actually the very first time they got to interact with other Chinese individuals who would understand and identify with, um, a Chinese identity or different, um, forms of Britishness. Um, in a very significant degree. And interacting with these, um, you know, ch other ethnic Chinese who, who understood and identified with Chineseness and Britishness differently made them reflect on what it meant to be Chinese and what it meant to be British. Uh, and more importantly, what it meant to be a Chinese living in a British colony. So, um, I looked at student magazines and I found that like a lot of students actually would complain or like, you know, it's, it's, it's very obvious that they were getting upset about how so-called westernized, um, the Chinese peers were at Hong Kong U. So the quote at the bottom of the screen here, you can see there's a quote, um, that's like quite a gendered, um, critic of, um, Chinese girls adopting English names. So I think the author of this quote, um, it, uh, I, I found it in the Union magazine. I, th I think the student probably wouldn't like my name very much. Um, and then the quote about it, um, it's when a student um, criticized that the peers had no interest in learning more about Chinese language and Chinese culture. And these observations on the Western inclination of Hong Kong new students also took place at a time when, um, there were, there was rising nationalism in China. In 1925, in particular, um, there were anti-imperialist protests in, China, uh, in, in Shanghai. Um, and it triggered the May 30th movement after police officers under British command opened fire at Chinese protesters and killed some of them at the scene. Um, and it triggered a wave of protests, um, against foreign, but especially British imperialism in, um, many Chinese cities. During this movement, Chinese nationalist and anti-British sentiments were at peak. At the forefront of this May 30th movement were actually university students, um, who organized marches and protests to advocate for the end of British imperial presence in China. But this wasn't the case for Hong Kong U students. In fact, um, in Hong Kong in June 1925, a strike boycott also started in Hong Kong. More than hundreds of thousands of Chinese left Hong Kong in protest. So university staff and colonial officials were really worried that um, these protests would affect uh, Chinese students at Hong Kong U. They would be immobilized by these um, anti-colonial sentiments as well. But, you know, a big surprise to everyone was that these um, students at Hong Kong U remained really cooperative 
with the colonial administration and with university administration. No march, no protest took place on campus. Almost no students attended any of the political protests uh, uh, in Hong Kong. Some students even actively helped the local government maintain its medical services. And during the strike boycott at the May Hall, uh, which I believe is the heck, you know, it's the home of the IHSS actually, student residents even arranged a play for an audience that included the governor of Hong Kong. And so the vice chancellor at the time, this picture you can see on the screen here, he in fact remarked that students were perfectly docile and more amenable to discipline than he had ever known them. And I think it's it's quite something to come from a vice chancellor of a university. The VC thought the students were um, the, the the VC thought that was because students were just grateful to be back on campus of this imperial university. And I think this provides us some insight to understand how Chinese students at Hong Kong do responded to anti-imperialist sentiments in China. As I said, um, this. The response that they gave um, to to anti-colonial movements in China was very unusual compared to what was happening on university campuses in mainland China. Many noticed this very unusual response. Um, for instance, observers um, at the time, you know, wrote remarks on this, but also students at Hong Kong U themselves noticed this unusual response. The student editor of the 1927 Student Union magazine actually wrote this quote you can see on the screen here, which suggests how strange they found that their student body was not very enthusiastic about what was happening in China at the time. Even the students themselves found their peers' seemingly apathetic response to the May 30th movement quite surprising. At the first glance, this seems to show us that ethnic Chinese students at Hong Kong U didn't quite care about Chinese nationalism. But that wasn't entirely true either. Students actually sometimes express very overtly um, patriotic sentiments for the Chinese Republic. In 1920, for instance, um, a student was inspired by the May 4th movement um, and the student who was a scholarship student from mainland China. He actually started a strike on Hong Kong U campus, um, and he wanted, uh, he started a strike because he wanted the university to allow them to mark 10th of October, which in the students' words was the national day of our country, referring to the Republic of China as a university holiday. They wanted the university to allow them to celebrate, um, the Chinese national day, um, on that day. And his strike, his campaign actually gathered widespread support from students across the campus, which gradually pressured the university authorities um, to make 10th of October a university holiday and allow students to celebrate it on campus every year. Um, and so on the screen, you see, you can see a picture, you know, eight years later of um, the double 10th celebration, the, the 10th of October celebration organized by the student union at Hong Kong U. You can also see a poem um, written in 1927 by a student who presumably uh, spoke Cantonese. 
um, because the title of the poem is a romanization of the Cantonese pronunciation of Zhonghua Wuhu, Zhonghua Wuhu, which means China, my country. Just from the title, you can, you can sense that there's a strong identification with the Chinese Republic. And these sentiments um, became more visible among student publication. After the Japanese launches full-scale invasion of China in 1937, for instance, um, you can see on the right-hand side of of, of the screen um, a quote um, from 1940 when a student wrote um, that you know university student the society needs you the nation needs you trying to mobilize um, their peers at Hong Kong U to support Chinese war effort. So what do we make with all of these, you know, different examples, different stories? I think the experiences of Hong Kong U students here actually show us how the dissemination of Britishness and in fact, the very presence of British colonialism in East Asia shaped the different ways in which ethnic Chinese living outside mainland China engage with rising Chinese nationalism at the time. As we see from the examples above, Hong Kong U students clearly did identify with China to a certain degree. They call China my country, they celebrated the National Day, and they supported Chinese war effort. But at the same time, they also demonstrated little enthusiasm towards nationalist populism, an attitude that contrasted so much with their counterparts in mainland China that it surprised even the students themselves. This attitude was, in fact, shaped by the colonial environment in Hong Kong, Hong Kong and, and, and Hong Kong's colonial status. For the students um, from mainland China, some of them actually wrote in their memoir that they were very conscious of the fact that they were living in a British colony at the time, even though they felt very strongly about um, the nationalist movements in China at the time. They felt that they were in a foreign land and that they shouldn't cause trouble in other people's land. That's exactly what they wrote in the memoir. Um, and, and, and this was especially true for many of them who came to Hong Kong, um, on scholarship, who came to Hong Kong U on scholarship because they worried about causing trouble would cause them their scholarship and interrupt or disrupt their, their study at Hong Kong U. For students who could afford to go to Hong Kong, you and their own funds, most of them come from Hong Kong and um, Malaya, and they were largely from an affluent social background. Existing works um, in Hong Kong history have already suggested that for many of the colonial middle class in Hong Kong at the time, they believed that Chinese nationalism would harm their economic interest. And so that's why when the strike boycott happened in Hong Kong, they decided to work with the colonial government so then they could steer Hong Kong away from these sentiments. Likewise, the largely affluent um, and diasporic background of Hong Kong new students um, combined with the curriculum of the university encourage many of these students to believe that British colonial rule would benefit Hong Kong more than Chinese nationalism. And so this encouraged them um, to sympathize very little with Chinese anti-colonial movements. The experience of these students then suggests that on one hand, 
colonial education made Chinese in British territories more receptive to British colonial rule and less responsive to Chinese nationalism. But on the other hand, British domination in Asia also made many feel that they didn't really have the option to engage freely and actively with Chinese nationalism. The colonial environment of Hong Kong and its officials' conscious attempts to indoctrinate cultural Britishness gave birth to a non-radicalism towards nationalist movements. It helps us see how British colonial rule affected the development of Chinese identities as well. At Hong Kong U, we see a group of colonial subjects who are not only engaging Britishness for its functions, who are not only engaging it to survive in the colony. The way these students dress, the way they decided on the names they go by, the pride they took in being British educated in an age of nationalism also suggests to us a conscious choice of identifying with cultural Britishness. That was Dr. Vivian Kong from the University of Brittle. I'm Carol Meng and I invite you to join me next Sunday morning on Mind Matters. Thank you.